1: we <laughs> Bonjour, je suis Charlie, and welcome to the Media Podcast. On today's show, five million copies printed and counting. Charlie Ebdo's grief-stricken staff produce an issue their colleagues would be proud of. We talk about the media coverage of this complicated story. Plus, TV leadership debates, will they happen? Tony Hall rallies staff at the BBC. UTV wants to sell its local stations. And as radio networks refresh their imaging, we talk to composer Dan Mumford about Branding Radio One's Newsbeat. This is the media podcast sponsored by Audio Boom. And with me today at the Hospital Club is the TV editor for Heat Magazine, Boyd Hilton. Hello, Boyd.
0: Uh, good evening. Good How evening.
1: are you? Fresh from speaking to David Attenborough this week at BAFTA.
0: Oh, yeah, I did, yes. It's not uh, a bad intro. No, that's good, yeah. I hosted uh, an event with him, yeah. He was lovely, of course.
1: Was it a commemorative event about it was the launch? uh,
0: It was effectively a screening of his new flying creatures program. That's not the official title for Sky on Sky One, and it was a screening of one of those episodes. And I interviewed him afterwards in front of esteemed BAFTA type people. But yeah, he's he's an incredible figure. At one point in this program, he gets hoisted hundreds of feet up in the air in a cave full of bats, a million bats and cockroaches who are feasting on a giant mountain of bat dung, and he it's hoisted up in the air like hundreds of feet and he's sitting there he's 88 years old and he still does that kind of stuff he is an absolutely incredible legend is
1: that really what happens in his show or are you pitching around for i'm a celebrity that's really what happened in his show (laughs) Uh, and joining us as well this week is steve ackerman md of content company something else hello steve
2: good evening ollie uh
1: i see that another of your apps has gone to the top of the charts oh you're very
2: quick on that it has yes Uh, tell us about it this is your moment to promote it so. so this is the app for the very popular children's BBC series Dumping Ground an app funded by CBBC and yes it's gone today to number one in the kids section of the app store how, how did you Sorry know that? because so. I'm on well, the Pulse man that's what a why clever boy I you are work. yeah
1: yeah yeah alright now let's start this week with some very sobering news of course Charlie Hebdo story which hasn't been off the front pages since the first reports came through last week uh, as if it needs recapping two gunmen storming the French magazine's offices killing seven of its staff goes without saying obviously our sympathies to everyone affected by those events but obviously we want to focus on the reporting of the events the initial deaths then the hunt for the gunmen the fatal siege and, and now a week later uh, as we go to press so has charlie hebdo once again a special edition of the magazine featuring another cartoon of the prophet muhammad um a lot of editorial decisions by the press by broadcast and social media going on behind the scenes uh, let's look at how they did. Uh, first off, social media. Steve, how, how important was Twitter, do you think, at reporting these events? And how accurate did you find it to be?
2: Well, I think when you have a story like this, these days, invariably, Twitter has a huge part to play. I can't really comment about the accuracy because I think things were moving so fast. It was very difficult to keep track of where, you know, which facts were emanating from which places but I suppose the part Twitter's played in in the story is obviously the whole viral Je Suis campaign, which clearly that's somewhere where Twitter was very fast to be able to pick up on it and spread it around the world, and that, that's played its own part within the wider story.
1: It seems to me there's a, a 2 strata thing going on with social media because there's the instant reaction, as you say, everything happening in real time, which you would think is sort of the purpose and the, the USP of things like Twitter. But actually, as much as anything, there are interviews and uh, front pages and cartoons that have continued to go viral days after they were initially published and people remarking and responding to them. It's almost like the most successful images from the last week uh, in terms of explaining the story, boy are the ones that get retweeted and retweeted long after they've
0: you know, been the most current thing. I think social media is now affecting stories like this so much that it's almost like it's difficult to think what life was like before. Events like this were... Covered in such a way that the story gets skewed by social media, and it gets led by social media. I mean, it's just really so Charlie actually was, I believe, tweeted first by someone who worked for a publication in France, just a just a regular guy, and just happened to t- come up with it. And it went massive within you know minutes of him coming up with that phrase. That was definitely went around the world by social media and that's become something now people are going well I'm not Charlie some people are annoyed by that some people obviously most people think it's a, a fantastic uh, way of showing support for the victims and support for freedom of speech but one, thing, one thing that fascinated me most actually was within hours of the whole horrible thing happening people were talking about this publication of which of course none of us had heard of let's yeah, face it exactly with, and everyone was an expert on it Yes, I read a blog by someone that went pretty viral talking about how it was racist homophobic sexist and of course they got it completely wrong they completely misunderstood the whole all of these cartoons um, because it's quite complicated version of satire that this publication specializes in you know they actually they're actually a kind of very left-wing anti-racist publication that would print images of Muslims that were that were a take on the racist images you know so it was quite a you know they were doing stuff like that and people just missed and that went viral and then there had to be someone else had to blog about it to say no no you got it wrong but this kind of thing happens a lot with this kind of story and I'm not sure the extent to which it's all helping
1: Yes, well, I mean, even on the, the day after it happened, immediately on Twitter you have this discussion about the front pages of the next day's newspapers. Uh, in the UK, no one yeah. at that point reprinted yeah. an image of the Prophet Muhammad in a cartoon form, but in Germany they did. And again, like you say, everyone was an instant expert. Everyone was saying, oh, well, this paper from Berlin is like their version of the Daily Mirror. No one had any idea, really. It becomes international.
2: But the role I think you see social media playing, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's definitely true in this environment, it becomes that, that sort of... Global dinner party it 's the comments people were making originally around the table to just one or two friends that suddenly they can express to everybody and I think that's that 's the role Twitter played in this. It was the commentary that ran along it and obviously the outrage the public outrage not not just about the violence and uh, and the mentality that's involved in committing acts like that, but obviously the whole freedom of speech debate and the and the element of, of sort of sort of values and ethics of European culture and european society and I think that 's what you saw on social media was that commentary Outpouring, outrage, comments, discussion, and you're right. I mean, I think especially in the UK, we don't also have that understanding of graphic art and the play, uh, and the part it plays in places like France and Belgium, where it's seen as a as a high art form. You know, we see comics as a bit of a, a kids thing. Uh, in places like France, it, it's it's a high art form, and and, and as Boyd said, a uh, you know uh, you know something that goes a lot deeper. And I think the part it plays for us within mm. our press and media. There's,
0: there's not much, my problem is there's not much room for nuance sometimes in social media mainly in Twitter I mean I love Twitter don't get me wrong but there is an issue with it being 140 characters well, I mean obviously you can post a link to your blog and there are lengthy lengthy blogs about what happened and but People do, like, Louise Mench is a good example. Now, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't love or hate her. I, you know, I think she wrote perfectly good um, romantic novels in her previous life. But she does tend to go off on one about stuff. So, right, now she, classic example of social media response, she's going around on Twitter day after day now attacking publications that haven't printed, for whatever reason, this, you know, the cover of the, of the new edition or didn't print the cartoons that portrayed... Mohammed, right? She's obsessing about it. In the similar way, she obsessed about anyone who dared criticise Margaret Thatcher when she died. Now, what was she doing back then? She was kind of attacking any people who dared express their honest view about Margaret Thatcher. I'm not saying she wanted to ban them, but she was definitely picking on them and kind of exposing them and naming them and shaming them. Now she's naming and shaming people who don't want to do something. So it's like, well, for me, that's just hypocrisy. And, uh, And I'm just a tiny example of people not really thinking stuff through and not really having any room for nuance because I think there's perfectly valid reasons why a publication might not want to print those images mm. well, of Muhammad
1: not least the security of their staff of course I, mean, you know, I saw an interesting quote from the editor of the Jewish Chronicle basically yeah. saying you know, he had every impulse to want to print it but every reason not to because he knew that he'd be top of the list of targets if Absolutely. he did Um, But, I mean, do you think, Steve, that actually our editors in this country did make the right decision in terms of what they put on the front page? And what do you think of the BBC guidelines, which we're being told are under review? I have a feeling they're not going to come to a conclusion anytime soon as to how you can or can't portray the Prophet Muhammad in the future on telly.
2: Well, it's all about context, isn't it? And the context here is because this is an international story. Different countries' media are going to treat things in very different ways. And obviously, there had been the discussion around, you know, going way back to the Danish paper that printed that controversial cartoon, and the fact that the British press hadn't tended to to do that really the same, the same sort of discussion I think you know we, we have a uh, as a culture I think an attitude that's, that probably is more respectful of different cultures and, and so you can get into a debate about whether that means satire gets blocked or I thought it was a great piece from one of the cartoonists in uh, I think it was The Observer or The Guardian I think it was The Guardian actually he drew some of the pictures that you might find published in France, and he, he his text underneath was, you know, is this offensive or not? And he he was uh, he drew yeah one, he, he drew one he drew one picture and, and said uh, uh, which was record. a very stereotypical Jewish-looking yeah. ca- cartoon. He said, if I'd have drawn this in 1930s Germany, how would you have felt about this? Now, now that's not to criticise what's gone on in France. It's merely to say that as a, a, that our country has a different outlook, and therefore I think the press have to a, oh, and yeah. broadcasts, have to play their part Absolutely. within that.
0: Absolutely, I remember someone someone reminded us today. On Twitter, that a year over a year ago, Benjamin Netanyahu was depicted in a cartoon in the Sunday Times of kind of I'm um, you know you have to it's, you have to seek out the cartoon, but basically building a wall of victims of the Palestinians have been killed by Israel, basically, and he was depicted you know a caricature of him. Now he they made an official complaint, the Israeli Embassy Israel official complaint Sunday Times about it. what well, now if you make an official complaint about something, if, what you're saying is you want them to stop doing that thing, right? Mm. Obviously he was at the front of that march in Paris. I'm just like constantly basically everyone wants their freedom of speech for what they believe in and they don't particularly want freedom of speech for what they don't believe in. That's that's my deduction. Okay, staying with the news for a moment uh, let's talk about the election debates
1: more pressure building on the Prime Minister to take part in the TV leadership debates which he wanted so much last time round didn't he? He said that they were a fixture of the calendar, now suddenly he's, he's not so sure. Uh, it all kicked off last week when Ofcom gave a preliminary ruling that UKIP can be considered a major party but the Green Party can't, Uh, this despite the fact the Greens have won a seat in a general election unlike UKIP Uh, The PM then said he wouldn't take part without the Greens. Broadcasters and other parties are chomping at the bit, threatening to empty seat Cameron if he refuses to take part, literally show an empty chair there. Boyd, would that happen? Would the broadcasters have an election debate without David Cameron?
0: Oh, I hope so Um, I mean, it'd be very funny if they did (laughs) and it would expose his, I think blatant cowardice if they did as well but having said that I don't understand that Ofcom ruling. I mean, I've read it. i tried to figure it out. They're complex mathematics. But as you say, the Greens have got a seat. Not only that, they've got about the, they're polling about the same as the Lib Dems at the moment. because mm. so they took into account what they're polling, the seats they've got, this and the other. Well, then don't get bad the Lib Dems in either, you know. But if you don't it,
1: take issue with the fact that UKIP are allowed to be there? Because UKIP, after all, have won the last two by-elections I, and the I European don't, elections. I, I
0: don't t- as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to have UKIP, you've got to have the Greens and the Lib Dems. I understand allowing UKIP in. I think there would be an outcry if they weren't. I mean, Steve, is the issue, actually, that
1: they let the Lib Dems in last time? I mean, actually, you know, would this have been better if we'd have had a presidential style head-to-head from the two men who are likely to be Prime Minister? And then you wouldn't have this issue where people are saying, ah, oh, but what about Plaid Cymru? and what about, uh, you know, the SNP?
2: Well, there was an excellent, insightful piece from uh, Andrew Rawnsley, who's you know, the chief political correspondent for The Observer, uh, where, to quote him, he said, the chances of this happening are between NADA and Zilch. And he said that the whole reason this isn't happening this time is because of last time. and mean the
0: chances of there being a debate with...
2: Absolutely zero. is isn't going to happen.
0: Well, no debate with Cameron taking or no debate at no all? No debate. He oh, doesn't okay. believe it's going to happen. Because he has nothing to gain from it.
2: Well, because Cameron has nothing to gain but also therefore uh, and, you know, there's question marks over election rules broadcasting was whether you could then hold a debate without the, the conservatism in terms of obviously the rules that apply for giving everyone equal coverage. But the reason that he won't do this is because straight after the last election on election night... According to Andrew Wilmsley, Lord Ashcroft, who, as you may know, is a very wealthy Tory benefactor and funds all the polling, was convinced that one of the reasons that the Conservatives had performed very badly was because they had had the election debate and that, that had allowed Clegg in uh, to take some of the vote. And uh, that was the narrative that then formed in the Conservative Party, which basically said it was a big mistake to have done this and we're not doing it again.
1: Is it good telly, though, boys? I mean, you yeah. know, you write about TV. it's oh, it, great TV. Is yeah.
0: it? Oh, God, yeah. Because
1: I mean, and being honest, last time around, it was the first time. And then when we got to the Sky debate and the BBC debate, I'd had
0: enough, actually. It was exciting oh, no. the first time. I don't agree. I can't take enough of them. Even when they're quite boring, that's fascinating to me. I'm <laughs> such a... Uh, do you know what I mean? There's something about them being boring that's actually intriguing in its, own, in its own way. And remember, this was it was just the one where Clegg... Clegg completely came into his own, looking into the camera yeah. and wandering around and being all, you know, I, I'm a normal cunning. Guy, mm. kind of thing, which I think absolutely ended up with him being involved with government. You know, disastrously, in my opinion. This is my politics coming out. You know, I think that was. I'm, I'm reme- You know, I'm, I'm, I can remember now watching him and what he was like, and it, uh, that was a kind of game changing to use the horrible phrase moment on that on the particularly on that first debate. I don't remember much about the second two debates. You're right, but the presidential debates in America are. I mean, I can't wait for them. You know, I'm already excited about them now. I don't even know who's <laughs> taking part. Um, just it's, it's drama. It's high. It's high drama. Any great event for me, you know, from the X factor to um, a presidential debate is fascinating, intrinsically fascinating even when it's Barack Obama being really boring, so there's an example, he was incredibly dull wasn't he, Mm. half asleep famously Mm. in the first presidential debate last time around and that was extraordinary to see and I think it should be as much a part of modern democracy as social media and everything else.
2: Well when you think that it's only a few months ago we had the Scottish referendum and Mm. the engagement there was within that and most importantly amongst young people and I know that the vote yeah. was, though, to 16 for that. But most importantly with young people, it seems incredible that in 2014 we're still struggling to get this sort of thing going. And as I said, also, because I know the offer came in from, I think, The Guardian, The Telegraph, and maybe Yahoo or YouTube. I can't remember who was the third partner. But, but to do a style of this online as well, the fact that in 2015 we're struggling still to get this going seems to me bizarre in an era when sometimes uh, voter turnout is not as high as we would wish and you know when we think about what we've just been debating in terms of France this again goes right to the to the heart of the values of what a modern European democracy should be about.
1: Okay right just before we head to the break... January is the time of the year where radio stations often update their branding and as you can hear, Radio 1 has just done that. This is BBC Radio 1. To its Newsbeat imaging. The media podcast spoke to its composer Dan Mumford about how he made it and life as a sound designer. Newsbeat Hi,
3: I'm Dan Mumford. I'm a composer and sound designer. What I've just done for Radio 1 is the new Newsbeat theme package. Um, So I basically composed the music for it. This is the first time I've ever composed for Newsbeat. The way they do it, Radio 1 put out a pitch document online and anyone can have a stab at it. So at that point, you're just sort of stabbing in the dark, just having a go and saying, well, throwing it out there. I just assumed that I wasn't going to get it. It's unbelievably competitive. Now that everyone's got a laptop with GarageBand on it or whatever, they'll just try and get in there. There's loads of music libraries that are for YouTube only or online only. And they've got thousands upon thousands of composers who think they're going to make thousands of Pounds, but it's just not going to happen. I mean, the money that way, it just it's nothing, it's pennies. But I think if you can kind of stick to your guns and go for big broadcasters and bigger contracts, then you'll be fine. I think Radio 1 were looking for something somewhere in between a sort of blatant logo and some sound design. Sometimes when you listen to Sonic logos, they can be utterly cheesy, but they work for the... For the network, and I don't think Radio One wanted it to be too cheesy, but they still wanted that kind of identifying sound. So you sort of strike a balance between sound design and sort of music. When you're making these sort of things, a lot of them aren't musicians, so they don't speak in that terminology, but you just got to sort of interpret what they want. It's definitely good for them to say they don't like it and they want things
1: changed because, you know, it always comes out better that way. BBC Newsbeat. That was Dan Mumford. You can follow his work at danielmumfordmusic.com. Boy, do you like a good radio jingle?
0: Oh yeah, all part of the whole brilliance of radio. Um, I mean, it does annoy me though when they change it. I am averse to change. I have to say that. Like, when Radio, F- I mean, I've been listening to Radio Five Live for years since it was Radio Five obsessively, constantly, you know, hour after hour. I mean, I'm on it quite a lot as well. But even when I'm not, I listen to it. And when they changed, <laughs> fairly was it last year? I think they changed their music. Yes, that's right, yeah. last year. yeah. And they have this extraordinary. They now have an extraordinary, complicated bed and kind of promotion of the station at the end of uh, each hour at which kind of sends I don't happen to know sends the presenters into paroxysms of um, of anxiety because it's really hard so they have to promote this thing in the middle of it oh god it goes on and on and on and that I was furious about the whole thing I've just about got used to it now
1: yeah we are creatures of habit aren't we I, I got a bit angry about the new magic ones Steve and I quite like them but I've just I've got used to singing, it, singing along that were radio's magic. magic ones brilliant yeah yeah well, I'm uh, allowed part to part listen part to it publishers of heat sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your favourite bed of all time Steve
2: oh my goodness I mean are you trying to make me sound like a radio animal. My favorite bed, my favorite bed of all time is my bed at home. I think. Ah, like, boom, boom, <laughs> boom, boom.
1: If we're allowed to include ads, then I'd go for Auto Trader from the '80s. Fantastic, remember that when you're buying a car. Oh remember yeah, that? Britain's yeah, yeah, favorite
2: yeah, by yeah, far good, resort, yeah. 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 Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
3: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Woof. Uh, Okay, we'll have more actual media news
0: (laughs) after this. This edition of The Media Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace 7. Squarespace 7 still builds websites, and still does it using drag-and-drop tools, but now it comes with new HTML5 designs to make a very modern website for your business or portfolio. For a free trial with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com. Plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And of course, you can get 10% off a monthly or annual plan by using the code MEDIAPOD at the checkout. Begin building your website with Squarespace today. And don't forget you'll receive 10% off when you use the offer code MEDIAPOD. (laughs)
1: Boyd and Steve are still with me. Let's cover some other stories. Telly first, the BBC's Director General, Tony Hall, speaking to staff on Wednesday about the impact of the general election and charter renewal. On the corporation, he outlined how everyone could become ambassadors for the Beeb by spending every penny of the licence fee as if it were your own, by speaking up for the BBC against those who would bring it down and in the most persuasive possible way, by continuing to do the best and most creative work of your lives. Which sounds very good, but Steve, the BBC have been a bit bland recently and actually clearly trying to play it safe, haven't
2: they? I'm not sure that's right, actually, Ollie. You know, I thought. Risk averse. Well, you know, have they? I mean, this is a huge broadcaster who are churning out many, many hours all the time of phenomenal content. You might say that about a particular channel. I don't don't know whether, you know, maybe that sentiment comes from, from. from BBC One's current schedule, or... but I think when well, you not look across, Steve
1: Hewlett's documentary about the royals. for example. Yeah, but
2: I, I think when you look across the BBC, I, you know, I I just don't buy comments like that. I just don't think that's true. I think when you look at some of the stuff they do across Radio Three and Radio Four, some of the online things that they're doing, some of the things One Extra does, you know, tackling often some very difficult subjects that they're trying to deliver to young people. I'm not sure they are risk averse. However. I think some of the comments that DG's trying to address I think are quite right and I think it's about it's, it's wonderful it's refreshing to hear a DG saying these things because there's no doubt about it there hasn't always been an attitude that every penny uh, treat every penny as if it's your, if it's your own, and in some quarters there's probably still more that can be done. So that's crucial, without doubt. Over the past five years, maybe the BBC has too often been on the back foot and hasn't been very good at getting on the front foot. And I know the context for all this is is the political lines are being drawn in terms of charter renewal and in terms of an election. When when we know the BBC will come in for a you know charter renewal in an election year is an explosive package.
1: And in terms of standing up for the BBC, being more robust. I mean, boy, do you think that is fair for the director yes, general to say they should do that? Because there absolutely. is clearly in the Murdoch press and in other places yeah. there is an agenda. There is oh. an agenda to try and unseat it's the a, BBC. I think at every it's about opportunity. time.
0: I think it's really good. If, you know, I think the, the head of the BBC, whoever is editorially in charge of the BBC, should absolutely be defending it, being very robust. And for me, there's been a, for a long time the BBC has been cowed by mainly tabloid attacks on it by absolute vested interests. You know, the most blatantly vested interest, of course, are the Murdoch Papers, who routinely slag off the BBC at any opportunity, doing stuff that they do all the time, by the way. And then the Daily Mail has a kind of weird, I don't know what their agenda, but just the editor of the Daily Mail is obsessed about how middle-class and lefty the BBC is. You wouldn't see a story on Newsnight about how many cabs mail staff get, would you? No, right, But but, but, but it is a public service broadcaster,
1: so I mean, in a way that scrutiny is fair, isn't it? Of
0: course. Well, scrutiny is absolutely fair, but going out there and and obsessively trying to find ways of attacking the BBC on the most flimsy of bases is is preposterous. Because, by and large, I think 95% of the time, certainly in terms of its content, it is brilliant. And if we keep giving the BBC less money effectively cutting back then the decisions like the one they're making at the moment to get rid of BBC 3 which I think is a disgraceful stupid decision will be made.
1: Well arguably one of the ways they waste money is buying formats like The Voice and putting them on Saturday night telly. <laughs> yep. uh, so Good let's link. let's talk Good about separate. the return of The Voice. Yes. Hooray. Uh, were you excited boy to see this back? No. No, neither um, was I.
0: No, I am I mean I write and he quite a lot about these kind of shows obviously it's my job but I've never been a fan of The Voice's format people weirdly like I get people on Twitter saying to me oh you're always like you love The X Factor and you love Britain's Got Talent and you hate the BBC I'm like no I just don't really like yeah Yeah. and I just don't really like The Voice I love all kinds of things on BBC I just don't I don't think The Voice format works I think The Spinning Chairs is the only interesting thing about it and when that goes in a few weeks time it's just a normal talent show and it's quite a boring talent show and I don't care what you know the singers look like and all of that and it doesn't produce stars and uh, well, it's got a quite a boring line-up of, of coaches and it just for me it just doesn't work as a format
2: <laughs> well these shows are always about narrative aren't they yeah, yeah. And I, I, there is know, no narrative in the yeah voice. Boyd will know better than me and I, but when I've seen The Voice that seems to me the big thing that's, that's missing
0: in all the best reality formats you get to know the cast of characters week after week after week so in the X-Facts I know that ratings were down this year on, you know they've been down since the peak but it still does pretty well solidly week after week certainly enough for it to make a huge amount of money for ITV and and, and Psycho and all the rest but you get to know those people week after week no matter how good or bad the singers are in The Voice they don't really do that very well you just don't literally no one I know knows who won it even people who like The Voice don't remember Bailey who won it Uh, we must talk
1: as well briefly about Stars in Their Eyes ITV brought it back uh, on Saturday night with Harry Hill at the helm I love it, uh, because I think it's a celebration of ridiculous Saturday night television. A lot of people twi- on Twitter felt differently, Boyd.
0: So I was out on Saturday night, and I hadn't seen it, because ITV didn't... Interesting, ITV didn't put it up. Just to explain, most pretty much most shows are on TV, unless they're live, obviously. And Saturday so night is pre-recorded. They show to critics, you get to see them on their on their various systems, you know, usually on, a, on an annoying internet website, which... which um, pixelates in front of your eyes but they didn't let us see stars in their eyes for whatever reason they must have been a bit worried about it it is maverick I mean it is one of the weirdest <laughs> most uncompromising yeah. pieces of comedy yeah. let's face it on ITV ever and it completely makes fun of the format absolutely it's a Harry Hill vehicle now and I think so the response so I was outside, I got back home and everyone was slating it Ian Highland furious about the whole thing hated it and I thought and I watched it Sky Plused it I thought it was fantastic I loved it but I love Harry Hill and I just thought it was amazing that he's got away with doing this very very edgy uncompromising cum- comical almost like a satire on the format but I think that's brilliant you know stars in the Rise of the format it's not I said on Twitter it's not King Lear that he's you know educing <laughs> it's a fairly dodgy old shiny floor TV fan, he could do what the hell he wants with it yeah. as far as I'm concerned I interviewed him um, before it went out but you know kind of before Christmas and he, and he said "Oh, I'm going to have fun with the format and I'm going to really you know and I, I, I'm just going to have fun with it and that, why else would he do it you know he doesn't need to do host a prime time shiny floor ITV show for any other reason than he wants to have fun and good on him and good on ITV for letting me do it now it didn't do very well in, up against the voice the voice got like 8 million or 8.5 million Harry Hill's size and size got about 3.5 I think but I'd much rather watch Stars in Their Eyes than The Voice. after have to say. And,
2: and, and Boyd, as a, as a as a TV expert, what's your expectation you. of it? Do, do you, do you, uh, would you see it as being a, a hit?
0: Well, I think in this day and age, unfortunately, I think um, it's. I feel it's too edgy and too mm. different for a night of the audience to be a big hit. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll probably stay stable at about three and a half four million maybe when the voice goes down inevitably as it will after the the spinning chairs go out the voice always plummets in the ratings ends up getting about like five and a half six million in the latter stages maybe Stars and Ice will come to its own but it's only on for six weeks so I don't know if it's got time to build an audience and I wonder if ITV will be brave enough to stick with it because it is it's it's I think it might be too much for the mainstream audience.
1: Okay well talking of being bold this week Channel 4 released their long-awaited diversity guidelines for program makers which covers on-air talent but also off-air production staff which is the bit I find a little bit weird Uh, Steve how do you react to this it is what kind of Lenny Henry was on about wasn't it making sure there are figures represented for BAME uh, and uh, And now, also within Channel Four, for sexuality as well, is this the right way forward?
2: personally, I feel long long overdue don 't forget this follows on the footsteps of Sky doing something similar about a year ago, Sky brought this in and If you make a show for Sky now, one of the first things they want to know is exactly this and same on screen and off screen you know they want to know the production staff quota is there and The reason why I think this is important is because. I think across all of the creative industries, not just broadcasting, but uh, advertising and, uh, you know, all all the different creative industries, there is definitely a problem, which is that we are charged with creating content aimed at the community, but we don't reflect it within our own makeup. And that's not because I think of actually a lack of trying, but it's clearly the, the things that are being attempted at the moment just don't work and a lot of that probably goes back to internships and relationships and teaching kids you know how to behave and work in the workplace and aspiration you know aspiration is a really really big thing in terms of kids maybe from from some minority communities not putting themselves forward because they just don't think they can get in and part of that is they don't see their peers or people they can relate to in roles both Uh, in front and behind the camera so that's why I I completely support it and I think it's very important because I think I I absolutely agree with what Lenny Henry says I think we've got past the point now where sort of nice initiatives are good enough, we've been doing that for 30 years and it's made very very little impact and I think now is the time to take it up a gear and actually start to really you know force people to adopt quotas and I think the BBC should be doing the same
1: Even with sexuality though because if your issue is that you know there's a disproportionate amount of white men working in the media that isn't the case for straight men is it let's be honest I mean there are a lot of gay people working in the media already why do you need a quota on that and why do you need to declare your sexuality to get a job
2: se- Yeah, se- sexuality is a more difficult one I must admit and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with with that because also you've got some people who I don't think you should be requiring them to declare their sexuality you know that's a very private decision as to whether you feel it's relevant to you or not in the workplace I understand the sentiment behind it but when it comes to skin colour I think that's really really important
1: And if you make programmes, by the way, do have a look at Broadcast magazine this week. They've got a handy guide to what you need to know, divided into program genres. So depending on what kind of show you work in, everything you need to know about what you need to do is there. Let's talk about uh, UTV as well, uh, and reports in the Media Guardian this week that they're looking to sell off their local radio stations steve paul robinson predicted this might happen in our last program what do you think it is that they want to sell
2: sadly i i can completely understand why they want to do this and i say sadly because my career started at signal radio which is one of the local stations that they that they own but i think it's very difficult in the modern media landscape to see what the place is for hyperlocal stations or hyperlocal brands And that's what they've got at the moment. They've got 13 or 14 local stations. Uh, A few of them share a brand, but they don't really resonate beyond the areas that they're in. And radio has moved on, and there may be some things I, I, that I'm not sure I agree with in terms of uh, global radio's approach, but one of the things I think they've been absolutely right on is taking brands that can work across across the country, both from a listener perspective and also, obviously, from a from a sales perspective. So that's really, I think, what's probably driving this. And also, you've got to look, at, obviously, at the success of TalkSport, which contributes... Which they own as well. Which they own as well, and which contributes a lot of the money in terms of their radio revenues, this to me seems a a sensible move to make, I think.
1: And boy, do you think they might end up selling TalkSport too? That's kind of the jewel in the crown, isn't
0: it? Yeah, I read that they might do. I don't understand why they would because TalkSport seems to be a big success an ongoing success and um, a good, I mean, I don't really like it I don't. it's not my, I I much prefer Five Live because I do. Even when you're not on it. Even when I'm not on it. But um, but it's great but it's good that there is a rival to Five Live and that there's a healthy competition there. I think, um, I mean, I'm sure that someone would buy it, maybe Bow Radio Bauer who print my magazine and who run their own radio stations like Magic and Heat Radio, which are all going national now, you know. That's the thing, as, as Steve says, you know, the, the trend is to get more and more national rather than the opposite, to get more and more local. So all of these, I think Bauer's plan, you know, is to make as much of their stuff completely national across the world as possible. It would be weird. I don't see why they would sell TalkSport.
1: So in your prediction, Steve, whoever buys these stations, if they do go up for sale would probably turn them into brands that already exist another outlet for them
2: well well, no because i noticed that that the media guardian were predicting that some of the smaller local companies might come in to buy these stations and you know some of those companies are turning a profit and doing fine and will probably continue to do so for the near future but i think when you're a, a major media organization like utv I think you have a different strategy, and I'm not sure there's really a place for very small local brands that you can't really develop online or elsewhere within that.
1: Okay, finally, there is just time for the media quiz. This week, yes, correct. This week, entitled Algorithms. Uh, In this unnecessarily convoluted game, I want you to be the Netflix of on-demand services, suggesting the news story based on what I tell you I like. Oh, Okay. I'm oh, my, yeah, my anyway. brain's
0: already hurt. It's, it's much we'll easier to play
1: than explain, okay. like Golden Balls. Okay. The winner spends a night in D.I. Hardy's Dorset Chalet. Uh, the loser spends the night with Ken Morley. Here's question number one I'm an on demand video service that likes Game of Thrones, but not supermarkets. What would you recommend for me
0: as a new story? to oh, yeah, be interested in. Boyd, yes. So um, Tesco is selling Blinkbox to someone talk talk is that right correct for 5 million pounds not very much really there are too many of these competing streaming services I do think the public are very confused by them all everyone I speak to whenever I try and say to someone oh you can watch it on Blinkbox or Now TV or wherever the hell it's a bit confusing I think there needs to be some kind of consolidation of them
2: but presumably that'll be a rebrand. You know, the Blinkbox name will die and yes. that'll become part of Talk Talk's offering in the same way as BT, right. obviously yes. going down. Yeah, because there's BT,
1: yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Right, question number two. Here's what I like. I am, again, an on demand video service <laughs> that likes Bullets Over Broadway oh, and wow. Ali Hall, but
2: also going. Go on, I'll give, Boyd, I'll give it to Boyd. I'll give it to Boyd.
1: Don't give it to Boyd, you're going to lose <laughs> no, no, the quiz. He, he r he,
2: he, he he, before me. If so, you say, say your name first, you get it. Okay, uh, this is say the. Your name. Say so, uh, uh, so your name. My name is Steve. There we All go. Right, I, didn't say say I didn't my say my name. My name is Boyd. No, no, no. My, okay. my name is Steve. Just fast. So this is uh, this, this is definitely Woody Allen making a TV series. He is. Sometime I think in the next twelve or eighteen months, thirty-minute episodes, and no one knows what it is yet. But
0: yeah. But no one ever knows what Woody Allen's films no. are going to be. Good point. Yeah. His quote was brilliant, though, on this story, saying, um, I haven't got any ideas, I don't know what I'm doing, and they're going to regret
1: it. <laughs> I don't I know was... why
2: they've offered this to me. This yeah. is a terrible yeah.
1: idea. Sounds yeah. like the
2: story of my career, actually. Yeah.
1: As a Woody Am <laughs> fan, I'm thrilled. It's a big name, though, isn't it? I mean, it's oh, not it's... a big name for network television, but it's a huge name for the kind of people that subscribe to upmarket over-the-top services, like Kevin Spacey
0: was. It would what? be. I, I think it would be a huge name for Tenor TV. What if, if, the, if the BBC got Woody answers to thing? That, that would be still yeah, be huge. I, I think. I think it would. Um, I'm not saying it would get that many viewers. I'm just saying it would be a huge story. And yeah. I think this is an amazing story and a brilliant coup by um, Amazon, yeah. But it's
1: interesting they look at algorithms. They say the kind of person who we want to attract is the kind of person who yeah. searches for Woody Allen films on our
2: channel. Well, that was that was obviously what lay behind uh, Kevin Spacey and House yeah. of Cards. They've proven it works and it's, it's. I suppose, you've got to say it's the right approach. You've got that data. You've got to use it. Okay, now
1: because I've engineered the quiz this way, this is the tie-break. Pay attention. Buzz in with your name. Okay, right. we're clear. Your are Boyd, you yes, Steve. Yes. Okay, right. I am an on-demand video service that likes Doctor Who, Luther, and ah, the original Boyd. House of... Oh, uh, and let Netf- me finish the question. Oh. <laughs> and the original House of Cards, but I want them cheaper. What do you recommend, Boyd? Uh, it's Netflix,
0: American Netflix. Yes. Um, because uh, they are in dispute, I believe, with the BBC about the American viewers being able to see BBC shows, like all the ones you mentioned, mm. and they're on the verge of saying, we're going to stop showing them, getting rid of them for the library, but I think in the end they'll come to some deal, it'll be fine. It's a negotiation, isn't it's it? It's a negotiation, yeah.
1: bit weird that it's public though. I mean, why is everyone able to see what's going on behind the scenes between BBC and Netflix?
2: Many, well, many negotiations are. Yeah. I have to say, I, 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 I've just been on holiday in the States and I, I'd always thought it was just sort of British hype when, uh, when there was talk about how Doctor Who's broken America and, uh, you know, I thought that's probably just us getting a bit overexcited about a show that really doesn't really have any impact in America and lo and behold, I'm walking through Universal Studios on my daughter's birthday, and, you know, this is one of the major theme parks in Florida and there's a... a Doctor Who shop selling or a shop selling Doctor Who merchandise with the Doctor Who T-shirts and three separate people on that trip, Americans told me how much they love watching. Yeah. Doctor oh, it's Who. huge!
0: Doctor Who has it had its biggest rating series so far ever in America this year. Yeah, it's getting bigger and bigger. I had an argument the other night on the internet with someone about British drama, and they just wouldn't accept that you know British drama now is more popular than ever. And he was saying, "Oh no, fifteen years ago it was all about British drama, now it's about you know Israeli drama because of one or two series that have been adapted and this that and the other." British drama is still massive, and Doctor Who and Sherlock as well. Another massive. They're on the. Cover of magazines there New York Times magazine yeah. they'll be on the cover of, they're huge it's fascinating on that note
1: on that sound of agreement uh, we end this week and Boyd Hilton you are the winner of the quiz oh, uh, that's it then my thanks to Boyd Hilton and to Steve Ackman thank you chaps don't forget you can get the podcast as soon as it's ready by subscribing via our website themediapodcast.com we're also on Twitter at themediapodcast or you can like our page on Facebook this week's episode dedicated to Dan Richards a sales veteran of Fortress Whopping, now Canary Wharf, turning print pounds into digital pennies since 1999, uh, and to Thomas Hale, aspiring academic, PhD student, and weird media junkie. Uh, thanks very much, both. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer. Matt Hill. Until next time. Bye bye. Small details are big surfaces.